You're listening to 20 Minute Topic. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. Join us for the next 20 minutes as we take stock of the situation with the Brexit process. Britain is an angry country right now. The Brexit the people voted for in June 2016 is not being implemented. It feels as though we have a rotten parliament that is doing everything it can to frustrate, delay, water down and preferably block Brexit altogether. Something that's being lost from the mainstream media narrative in the last few days is just how damn angry people are out there in the wider country beyond the Westminster bubble. And there are three reasons that I say that. If you think back to a few weeks before the referendum in 2016, every single house in the country was sent an official government booklet that included the line, This is your decision. The government will implement what you decide. Then the following year, we had a general election. Every single Conservative and every single Labour candidate stood on a manifesto promising to implement the referendum result. And thirdly, there was a vote in the House of Commons to trigger Article 50. MPs voted to trigger Article 50. What we have seen in recent days, and indeed for most of 2019, are MPs working to frustrate, water down, and preferably block Brexit, and no more so than with the Letwin Amendment last Saturday. I think the astonishing thing is just how big the majorities have been. The referendum was huge, uh, the largest vote in British history. It was a very clear majority, uh, 4%, which, although it doesn't sound very clear, um, you just don't get 10 and 20% majorities in elections because we're a country of fairly similar people as I think probably you'll find many countries are. So our voting is quite close, but it's a much bigger majority uh, with 17.4 million people voting in favour of leaving the European Union. And one thing that they are desperate, our politicians dishonestly and desperately are trying to say is we didn't know what we were voting for. Well, I've been actively campaigning in opposition to Britain's membership of the European Union since the early 1960s, before we even joined. And I look around me and I would say that there is little doubt in my mind that the people who knew the most about leaving and about the European Union and about its undemocratic, unprincipled methods were, in fact, the leavers, now known as Brexiteers. The people who wanted to remain were usually people, well, I say usually, were led in a big way by people who were drawing direct income from the European Union. A typical piece of dishonesty that you find about the European Union is that we have members of the House of Lords, members of the House of Commons, and other individuals who actually draw incomes 
from the European Union. Ah, now that's an interesting point you make there, because I think back, I was watching a House of Lords debate, it must have been several years ago now, and Neil Kinnock spoke, and then Norman Tebbit spoke, and Tebbit said, made an observation, he said, I am a Privy Councillor, and you are a Privy Councillor. The difference between you and me, Lord Kinnock, is that you are drawing an EU pension. And so where there is a contradiction between the EU and your role as a Privy Councillor, and bearing in mind your EU pension can be withdrawn if you act against the EU's interests, whose side are you on? And Neil Kinnock didn't really answer the question. So, yes, you are correct. There are many elements of that in both Houses of Parliament where you find out that either directly or indirectly they're either taking money or have vested interests in other ways with the EU. But there's this argument which you touched upon there, um, that uh, this narrative that's been dragged out for more than two years now, well, three years, more than three years, um, that Leave voters didn't know what they were voting for. I knew what I was voting for because I read what was on the ballot paper. And the ballot paper read, should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union? And there were two boxes and you put your cross in the one you favoured and I put my cross in leave the European Union. And that meant exactly that. And there were a plethora of reasons why people voted leave. Some cases to do with concerns over national sovereignty. Some cases over concerns about uncontrolled mass immigration. But what we know, based on the research of Professor Chris Hanratty, is that this, these are rough figures, but we do believe them to be fairly accurate because he's put a lot of work into this. Professor Hanratty concluded that by party, of the seats that the Labour Party held at the time of the referendum, 148 voted leave and 84 voted remain. And of those that the Conservative Party held at the time of the referendum, 247 voted leave and 80 voted remain. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, we had a general election a year after the referendum in which every single Conservative and every single Labour candidate stood on a manifesto pledging to implement the result of that referendum. Those who are now backtracking and have been backtracking particularly throughout 2019 have lied to their constituents. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And a measure of the corrupt dishonesty of the European Union is always brought home for me uh, by one of the very senior economists in the European Union, Bernard Connolly, who, as working within the European Union, wrote a book called The Rotten Heart of Europe. It was detailed, it was accurate, it cited every single one of his examples, it sourced them, and interestingly, for having written the book, he was summarily dismissed from his job, and as I understand it, denied his pension rights, and there was even talk of taking him to court for telling the truth about the European Union. It is that sort of a dictatorship. And may I commend his book to anyone who wants to know more about Europe. Can you say the name of the book again, please? It's called The Rotten Heart of Europe. Mm -hmm. And it's easily available on Amazon and other Amazon, uh, and it was written in, uh, as I recall, 1995. I read it in about 1997. Mm -hmm. 
and I will freely admit, um, despite um, being prone to reading an awful lot and having read a great deal on the European Union, including all of its treaties. I found his book very hard going because it was um, hard nosed, factual, lots of complex economics in it. And uh, it cross referenced everything. Um, and I read it, I can't remember whether it was twice or three times to get the full measure of it when it first came out. Well, shortly after it first came out. Okay, so it's, you're saying it's not an easy read, but it's an important read for people. But going back to where I was a moment ago, um, about the various reasons people voted for Brexit, again, looking at Chris Hanratty's research, by region, because um, the results came in on a regional basis on the night of the, uh, the referendum, by region, nine regions voted leave and three regions voted remain. And what we can take from this is whatever people's reasons for voting for Brexit, whether it's concerns about sovereignty or mass immigration, what it really boils down to, if you look at where those nine leave regions are, the South Wales Valleys, the northeast of England, you get the idea. Life just isn't very good. These people have seen the loss of their industry and not replaced with meaningful, well-paid jobs. A brain drain, people with degrees feeling they have to leave the area to get on in life. Uncontrolled mass immigration, the suppression of wages. Whatever the reasons are, these people living in those nine leave regions, life just isn't very good. And this is something that the political classes, particularly on the Labour side, though not entirely on the Labour side, are failing to grasp. There is a huge disconnect with the, the Labour heartlands who have routinely voted Labour for generations. Even if they're not quite sure why. Yes, but even so. <laughs> um, I would agree with you. And the disconnect is massive. And it all boils down, and we've done a podcast on that that um, our audience may care to look up, on groupthink. Indeed, and, yes. And the podcast covers the fact that people who live in a bubble like Westminster, like the City of London, tend to listen to their own group and nothing outside of it, and they tend to read and study people who confirm their opinion. Rather and than challenge all too often, opinion, yeah. it is a false opinion. Mm. And social media, which is incredibly misnamed, it should be called anti-social media, because people select on social media all the people who are just like them. Yeah, the echo chamber mentality. Yes, we, we did do a podcast on this. It's still, still available on all the talk podcast platforms, whichever way you listen. So do look it up. It's a podcast on Groupthink. It's part of the 20-minute topic series. But on a related note, and what you said there is relevant because... I watched the uh, the coverage of the proceedings of the House of Commons on Saturday. I watched the BBC One coverage. And th there's something that struck me as the Letwin Amendment was going through and they were stood outside College Green. I personally think they should have hosted it from a studio rather than College Green because inevitably there was going to be a backdrop of um, pro-EU protesters screaming and shouting. But there again, I think that was a deliberate decision by the BBC. But what I would say is whenever they had these sorts of so-called panels of experts in, it was mainly lobby journalists 
who live their lives within that Westminster bubble. And there was an article on Guido Fawkes written by Paul Staines a couple of weeks ago where he said that you would be surprised at how, in his words, corrupt lobbying is. And he said, you see the way so many journalists are on hugs and kisses terms with MPs and they're sort of looking... There's sort of a mutually beneficial thing there where they're looking to be the ghostwriters of their autobiographies one day or one day go from being a journalist to becoming a special advisor. But what really struck me watching that coverage on the BBC on Saturday was the way so many of the journalists and correspondents who were invited into these panel discussions were more interested in gossip and the minutiae of what was going on at Westminster than issues. Now, if they had a smart producer on that programme, what I would have done is I would have had correspondents in the northeast of England, in Yorkshire, in Lancashire, in the South Wales Valleys, at a working men's club or a community centre or even a supermarket foyer, and stopped people and said, what do you make of what's going on today? in these leave voting heartlands what do you make of it how are you feeling right now because what that broadcast didn't do on bbc one on saturday afternoon was convey just how damn angry people are out there in the world beyond the westminster and london bubble yes but unfortunately you'll find if you send out bbc reporters anywhere in the country they will they cannot be trusted they will select for their panel that they're going to interview those who they prejudge will provide the answers that will please their bosses in London. So you don't get balanced news, you just get more gossip because it's the same bubble thinking mindset. But also, let's not forget Hugh Edwards, who was hosting the coverage on Saturday. I personally think the BBC should have put Andrew Neil in charge of it, but they didn't. They chose Hugh Edwards. When the amendment, the Letwin amendment was voting on and they went back to, to College Green and Hugh Edwards was there with his latest panel, he referred to, and to use his word, excitement. Well, that's not a word I would have used. And that's not a word 17.4 million people would have used. It was not exciting. It may be exciting to him and the circles he mixes in, who are fascinated by all this gossip and the minutiae of Westminster. But the main feeling out there, not just amongst Leave voters, I might add, but there are many people on the Remainer side, pragmatic Remainers, who voted Remain, who are, who are seeing they just want this over and done with so we can move on, and those who voted Remain that respect the result of the referendum. And I include decent people like Piers Morgan in this, who he put his cards on the table, did vote Remain, but has said we must respect the result of the referendum. He's just hammered the point for, for over three years now for crying out loud, get this thing done. And we've also got people I know who voted Remain, who, are now, who have now seen the way the political establishment is trying to stitch things up and have switched to supporting leave. So, but you've got to remember about Hugh Edwards. Let's not forget, both his parents were senior figures in Plaid Cymru. His wife is Vicky Flind, who produces Robert Peston's programme on ITV. Oh, by the way, Robert Peston, who's his girlfriend, just so happens to be the person who made an allegation about something Boris Johnson touching her knee 20-odd years ago. Or was it her bum? I can't remember. But no, it was a knee under okay. a table. Okay, okay, it was her knee. But you can just see from that little spider's web I just drew then how all this links together. However, there are some who have displayed tremendous integrity. And I'd like to make a point of singling out, and literally singling out, because uh, her position has been fairly 
incredible uh, from the back benches of the Labour Party, uh, Caroline Flint. Very well said. Was yeah. at one time the Europe Minister for the Labour Party, hmm. who quite unashamedly states that she voted Remain. But her constituents and the country voted Leave, and she has actively campaigned, been outspoken, and has been vilified by those in the bubble in the Labour Party for stating that she wishes to represent the majority as those were the people she promised to represent and her party promised to represent and the government promised to represent. Unlike people like Anna Subri, who have done the absolute opposite, prostituted themselves to the pretense that they wanted out to get elected on the manifesto as a Tory, who is now actively seeking to sabotage the Brexit uh, course of action, along with people like um, Oliver Letwin um, and Kenneth Clark, although we knew that he would um, not honour his work, honour the party line on that, because he has such a vested interest as one of the early Bilderbergers in the foundation of this organisation that the British people, by a majority, have no desire to be members of. We'll do it, a podcast it, on Bilderberg at some point in the future because the Bilder yeah. group, Bilderberg group has got such a long history going back for 50-odd years now. But yes, you are correct to bring that up. And I also endorse what you said a moment ago about Caroline Flint. She has really been a woman of integrity and great courage in this last few years, and she deserves enormous credit for that. So to conclude then, this week, we're not, we, we've deliberately not touched on the minutiae of what's going on this week because I'm aware we're recording this podcast on Monday evening and things are going to move very quickly. But looking at where we are now on the evening of the 21st of October, you said a few weeks ago that you thought we would leave the European Union, in theory at least, at the end of October. Now we're this bit nearer, what is your view now? Do you think it'll still happen? I think there's still a danger that integrity will overcome the parliament but i do have grave doubts um there are still too many people actively trying to sabotage the situation though if the european union has any integrity it will actually be our savior realizing that the honorable position is to make it uh, possible for britain to leave and if they have any common sense, they will assist us by, by refusing to give an extension of time, making it impossible for Britain to not leave on the 31st. And our parliament would have to either very rapidly volt fast and act with integrity and pass the bill, although it would not be completed, there I am sure that Europe, in the interest of decency, would permit us to leave on the 31st 
with completion of the paperwork to be concluded within two weeks, maybe three weeks. And we would leave either with our parliament voting for a deal or voting for no bespoke deal by default. Well, who knows where we'll be by this time next week. Will Boris Johnson get the extension he doesn't want from the EU? Will the withdrawal bill get through Parliament? Or will there be lots of amendments that change it in ways that will make it Brexit in name only? Indeed, would the EU agree to such changes? So many questions, aren't there? Thank you for listening. See you next week. Mm